We're in a 13-week sermon series celebrating the, the greaterness of Jesus, if I can coin a word. Of course, focusing on Jesus is much more than something we do at Crossroads. It is what we are as a church. It's not an activity. It is our identity. We are Jesus' people. And when I'm asked to describe our church, I usually articulate it this way, that we are a Christ-centered, Bible-based, family-friendly, seeker-sensitive church. When people ask me to describe our church, that's the way I start. I start with those two, Christ-centered and Bible-based. Just last weekend between services, there was a young, 30-something young man who asked me to detail what we believe as a church, and I said, that's easy, these four things, if you can keep them in mind. The Lordship of Jesus, the authority of the Bible, the unity of believers, and the evangelization of the world. That's what we believe. And you'll notice that both of those start with Christ and the Bible, our description of who we are and the description of what we believe. They start with Christ and the Bible, the living word, the Lord Jesus, and the written word, the Bible. These are the twin pillars on which our church and our lives are firmly established. And in the words of the old hymn that was sung at the funerals of Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson, how firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in His excellent word. What more can He say than to you He has said, you who to Jesus for refuge have fled? And then the final stanza of that old hymn is, as though God Himself were speaking to us, the soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Well, we've come this far in the first three weeks of 2016. In chapter 1, we learned that Jesus is greater than angels, and there's just a couple of verses that highlight that that I would want to point out to you here from chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. It says that Jesus is superior to angels. So He became as much superior to the angels as the name He has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? Then last weekend, we learned that Jesus is greater than death, that Jesus shared in our humanity so that by His death, He might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Well, tonight we come to chapter 3, and we learn that Jesus is greater than Moses. Now, that is really saying something. Have you seen this man? Take a look. There he is. Now, of course, that's Charlton Heston. You know, it's secretly, I just, I just hope I look that good when I'm 85, you know? Holding the Ten Commandments above his head, standing and over the Red Sea and by the power of God parting the waters. Awesome. 
First time I saw the dramatization of the Bible on a big screen, it was in the Rialto Theater in Champaign, Illinois, and it was Charlton Heston as Moses in Cecil B. DeMille's classic, The Ten Commandments. It was memorable. He was a prince of Egypt for 40 years. He was an obscure shepherd in Midian for 40 years. And he was the second greatest leader of all time for 40 years. Someone has said you could divide Moses 120 years into three equal parts. He spent 40 years learning to be somebody in Egypt. He spent 40 years learning to be nobody in Midian. And he spent 40 years learning what God can do with a nobody, make him a somebody. Moses was responsible for facing down the most powerful ruler on earth and leading three million slaves out of bondage across the Red Sea through the wilderness to the brink of the promised land. And to this day, no one is more revered in Judaism than Moses. And his life was remarkable from beginning to end. The hand of God clearly preserved him as a baby and literally dug his grave at the end of his life. He had a supernatural revelation and calling from God in a bush that was burning without being consumed. And he was chosen to be the deliverer of God's people from Egyptian bondage, accomplished by unparalleled demonstrations of God's majestic power in the ten plagues. He became a lawgiver, delivering the Ten Commandments. Listen, the Ten Commandments are the foundation of civil law in virtually every civilized country of the world. And he built the tabernacle with all of its worship and all of its symbolic significance. And Moses was Israel's great historian, writing the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And in spite of all the great wonders, and in spite of all the great accomplishments, and in spite of all the great events in his life, he was more humble than anyone on earth. Now, the account of the transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17 reveals that Jesus' face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And just then, Moses and Elijah appeared on either side of Jesus when a voice from a cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now, the transfiguration was the visual reinforcement of what we're learning right now from Hebrews, that Jesus is greater than the law. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than the prophets, symbolized by Elijah. And there are two statements in Hebrews chapter 3 that just come right out and say it. They just say it, that Jesus is greater than Moses. And remember, these are Jewish ears that are hearing this. These are Jewish eyes that are reading this. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. And then in chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, we read that Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, but Christ is faithful as a son. Moses was a servant, Jesus a son over 
God's house. Now, in the process of asserting that Jesus is greater than Moses, the Hebrew writer includes in this chapter a series of four what I would call uh, exhortations. Now, I don't know about you, I need exhortations. I need to be pushed, I need to be charged, I need to be pressed, I need to be urged from time to time. And these four imperative statements in Hebrews chapter 3, we're going to lift them out tonight. These four imperative statements are our practical takeaways from worship this weekend. And the first one is found right there in verse 1. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. Hebrews 3.1, Therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. Now, he addresses these Jewish Christians as holy brothers. And you know, don't you, that, that holiness is not simply about the outward signs of being religious. It's not how you dress. It's not how you behave in worship. It doesn't come from what we do or don't do. Holiness does not come from what we do or we don't do. The word holy means set apart. Holiness comes from a deeper place in us. For example, you could refuse an invitation to go with your boyfriend or girlfriend to Daytona Beach for a spring break orgy, and that does not make you holy. But if you're a serious disciple of Jesus, you would certainly refuse such an invitation without feeling like you were missing out. You see, saying no does not make you holy, but being holy would make you want to say no. And the word brothers here in this passage reminds us that we're not alone. Holy brothers, we're not alone as we seek to live a God-honoring, Christ-witnessing life. It's plural, indicating there are many whose loyalty is to Jesus above all others. And that's why I love events like Breakout for our junior hires and Summer in the Sun for our high schoolers and passion for our young adults. You go to these events. Our young people go to these events, and they see thousands of young Christians praising, worshiping, committing themselves to God. And this exhortation here, to fix our minds or fix our thoughts on Jesus, it's not substantially different than the charge that appears in Hebrews 12 too that we've identified as kind of a key verse, fix your eyes on Jesus. Same idea. If you keep your eyes on Christ, it stands to reason that you'll keep your minds on Christ. Romans 8, 6 says, so letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death. Think that about that. Let that sink in. Letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death, but letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. And this is talking about letting the Holy Spirit control your, your mind. Now, Proverbs 16, 9 says, the mind of a man or woman plans his or her way. The Bible makes it clear there and in other places that our thinking affects the way we live. Everything 
we do is determined by our thought life. Well, some of these Hebrew Christ followers were thinking about turning back to Judaism. They were thinking about turning back to the leader from whom they received the law of God, Moses. So how do we go about fixing our thoughts on Jesus? Well, I can share with you what I do, okay? I have in my office three of my favorite artist depictions of Jesus hanging on the walls in my office, and I have a, I have a burlap bust of, of Jesus positioned right above my desk. And several times a week when I'm alone there in my office, I turn my chair around and I fix my eyes on it. And I've got two pieces of statuary in my office. One is on my desk. One is on my meeting table. The one on my meeting table is, is Jesus washing Peter's feet. And I see it, and it reminds me that I am a servant of the servant. And the other piece of statuary is the, the piece of statuary that portrays Mary holding the body of Jesus. And my car CD player is loaded up with Crossroads Choir music and Brian Seitz and Matt Bayless worship CDs. I go home at night to verses inscribed on plaques and books and magazines on tables and shelves that are mostly related to Jesus in one way or another. And each day I get two different devotionals on my iPhone and I have my daily Bible reading, and you might be listening to this and thinking, this guy's living like a monk. <laughs> Not at all. I watch ball games. I watch 2020. I watch Fixer Upper on TV. Not because I want to, but because my wife likes to watch it. I play bingo when the grandkids come over. I jump up and down and run on a rebounder. I have a normal life. I'm not a monk. <laughs> but I do have my priorities. Jesus Christ is my Lord. My best friend. My wonderful counselor. Fixing my mind on him is not inconvenient. It's not a drag. It's not a matter of duty. It is normal life. And he is greater. So what other exhortations can we mine from chapter 3? I want you to look at this one in verse 12. See to it that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart. Now, I want you to notice, again, that is an imperative. That's a command. Just like fix your eyes on Jesus. See to it that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart. Now, Hebrews 3.12. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Now, if you'd look back up at verses 10 and 11 in that chapter, right before verse 12, there are quotes from Deuteronomy and Psalms that talk about the wrath of God, that talk about the anger of God and the reason for it. And God said, I was angry with that generation because their hearts were always going astray and they have not known my ways, so I declared on oath in my anger they shall Never enter my rest. 
Now, the rest he was talking about then was Canaan, the land flowing with milk and honey, the promised land. For us, the rest is different. Rest is the promised land, but it's heaven. And this command in verse 12, see to it that none of you, like them, has a sinful, unbelieving heart. There's an unmistakable warning there. There's a serious warning there. The writer of Hebrews viewed any return to Judaism as an act of unfaithfulness towards Jesus and unbelief toward God. Judaism served its purpose and had to give place to Christianity. And to turn back away from Christianity, to turn away from Jesus, would be to reject God and to reject his revelation of himself in Jesus. And to all who reject Christ and, or turn away from him or turn back to whatever is to ensure that they will never enter his rest. Right, right out of the passage. Now listen, I don't want to make anyone insecure about their salvation, but I've got to point out to you that the Hebrew writer is addressing Christians here. In chapter 3, verse 1, he addresses them as holy brothers. We just read it. In chapter 3, verse 12, he addresses them as brothers. In Hebrews 3, 14, he says, we have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. Now, there is a difference, stay with me, there is a difference between losing something and throwing something away, isn't there? Can you lose your salvation? No. Can you forfeit your salvation? Yes. Can your salvation slip through your fingers? No. Can you turn your back on it and walk away from it? Yes. But there's something else here I want you to see. As Christ followers, we don't just look out for ourselves. There's a community application here. It says, see to it, brothers, that none of you turns away from the living God. Do you see that? We have a responsibility for one another. Now, this is an assignment that nobody wants. I understand that. But in this passage, we are commissioned to confront one another in love. See to it that none of you, that's a phrase that obligates me to watch over and watch out for my brothers and my sisters. Several years back now, on an extremely cold winter night, Pastor David Reinhardt and I went out to a home in the area where a crossroads young adult man was shacked up with his girlfriend who was carrying his child while his wife, also carrying his child, was at home alone. We went out there to plead for him to repent. He answered the door. He stepped out on the porch and closed the door behind him, and his first words were, Guys, I don't want to do this. And I said, well, listen, brother, we don't want to do this either. But 10 years from now, when you reflect on your past with regret, you're not going to be able to say that no one cared enough to speak to you. No one tried to reach out to you. 
when a couple of our young adult men drank to excess and then posted a video of themselves online, I spoke to them privately. I spoke to them individually about my disappointment in them and their public witness for Jesus. Now, why would I do that? Am I the moral police? No. Do I think I'm better than they are? No. I'm just a big brother in the Lord watching out for my little brothers. And I should warn you, when you try to see to it that no one turns away from the living God, you are going to offend some people. You're going to make some people mad. But we do it. Being careful to take time to remove the fence post from our own eye before we help remove the sawdust from our brother's eye. Here's the third exhortation from the text. He says, encourage one another daily. Hebrews 3.13. But encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. So what happens to a Christian who doesn't have others to encourage him on a regular basis? We can become discouraged. He can become susceptible to temptation. And according to this text, ultimately he can become hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Now, if you've ever handled petrified wood, you know that petrified wood is incredibly dense. It's very hard, but it didn't become that way all at once by a single act of nature. No, grain by grain, minerals leached from the surrounding soil, replacing the rotting fibers of once living wood. The process was gradual and silent, yet it was persistent, and it became rock hard. Now, that's how that's exactly how a hard heart develops. Mark and Allison were an attractive couple in their mid-twenties. Both grew up in families that were active in church. Mark once sang in a church music group. They wanted to get married. They went to their pastor to ask him to marry them, and in the process of the interview, it came out that they had been living together for several months. So the pastor gently led them through the interview, hoping they would recognize the contradiction between their profession of faith and their lifestyle. And he showed them Scripture, and he explained the risk to their future relationship, and that it would ensure God's favor on their marriage for them to separate and remain celibate before their wedding. But all through the counseling session, he sensed he was being stonewalled. And as they were closing... Allison spoke up with impertinence. Well, Pastor, we appreciate your honesty in sharing your opinion with us, but we see things differently. We'll find another church. Well, did, did this young couple become, become hardened to the plain teaching of the Bible about sexual purity in some kind of single rebellious act? No. No. Probably not. Or was it the 
slow, steady erosion of moral absolutes in their lives. Maybe they started by being entertained by Spike TV or MTV or reading Fifty Shades of Grey or taking a vacation to attend R-rated shows in Las Vegas or being influenced by the moral values of their friends over time. That's how hard heart happens. Well, regardless, we're, we'll encourage our Christian family of faith, our brothers and sisters, I hope you all feel deputized tonight, <laughs> to encourage your brothers and sisters in Jesus because you love them. We love them. And we're going to speak to them in love. Even if we're misunderstood, even if we're misrepresented, even if we are maligned, why are we going to do that? Because love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not proud, is not rude, is not easily angered, keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And when is it that we should encourage each other? Daily. As long as it is called today. That's what the text says, isn't it? Daily. As long as it is called today, do it. We can't plan beyond today. Today is all we have. So I want to know, do you feel a sense of urgency about being more encouraging to others? I hope you do because this is an area where every one of us can improve. One more exhortation from Hebrews chapter 3. Here it is in verse 15. Do not harden your hearts. Not only encourage your brothers and sisters, not only see to it that none of you develops a hard heart, but then this, do not harden your hearts. And so it says in verse 15, today, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. See, it's not enough for us to encourage each other daily. We've got to daily listen to the voice of our Heavenly Father, listen to the voice of our Savior, and that's what keeps your heart from getting hard. If you're hearing from God. Now, I know I've mentioned the Jesus Calling books before. It's Scripture written in a way that Jesus seems to be saying it to you personally. So, so I'm going to suggest if you have trouble hearing God's voice, if you have trouble sensing the voice of Jesus speaking into the deep, deepest parts of who you are, invest six or eight dollars and get one of those books and get under a good light when you have some quiet moments. Let him speak to you. If you have trouble hearing his voice, I recommend you get a copy of this book from our resource center, from the Vineyard Bookstore. It protects him daily time to hear his voice. Why? To keep your heart tender. So do we have to live in constant fear that we're in the process of developing a hardened heart? By no means. Back to the, one of the verses that I recited earlier in this chapter 3. It's uh, this one. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, but Christ is faithful as a son over God's house, and we are his house if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. I hope you see the urgency in this text. You notice it in the repeated use of the word today. 
that word today, it appears three times. It appears in verse 7, in verse 13, and in verse 15. Today, in this marvelous day of grace, when you hear the Word or when you read the Word, it is extremely important to do what the Word declares we should do. And do it today. If you're not a believer, today's the day to believe. And if you are a believer, today is the day to start encouraging others. Today is the day to present yourself to God as a living sacrifice. Today is the day to be a good steward, a good soldier, a good runner in the race for Christ. Today is the day. Today is the day to give your best soul, spirit, and body in faithful service to him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Because we don't know the day and we don't know the hour that Jesus will return. We know his coming is imminent. I'm telling you, there's nothing left to be done for Jesus to part the eastern sky and descend even as he ascended. And every eye will behold him. Nothing, there's nothing yet to happen before that to happen. We're waiting right now on the blast of the trumpet. We're waiting right now on the twinkling of an eye. We're waiting, waiting right now for him to come like a thief in the night. So we should buy up every opportunity to witness for him. We should redeem the time. Never boast about tomorrow because we don't know what tomorrow may bring. Today, today, this is the day. Now is the most acceptable time to take seriously these imperatives, these exhortations, these commands today is the day. And if you're here tonight and you have a decision to talk about that you want to begin at least today to, to begin to think seriously about, think deeply about, to talk to, seriously to someone about it, we want to ask you to remain in the worship center as others are leaving so we can have some protected quiet time with, with you to get better acquainted with you and to hear about how the Lord may be at work in your life. And we have section hosts and pastors who are anxious to meet with you. Uh, maybe you'd be more comfortable back at the guest gathering. There'll be people back there to talk to you. We want to close this evening by doing what we've been talking about from Hebrews chapter 3. We want to see to it that none of us uh, develops a hard heart. We want to do our best to encourage you if you're here tonight. We want you to make a decision today rather than someday, one day. Will you stand with me for prayer? Please. Father God, we just marvel at your plan through the ages. The whole reason for giving the law through Moses is to demonstrate to us that we're incapable of perfection. We're incapable of righteousness that compares to your holiness. Thank you for demonstrating that to us, taking the years, the generations to do that so we get that. And we're convinced, Lord, 
that we need the righteousness, we need to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We need, we need the cleansing that the blood of Jesus on the cross of Calvary, only that can provide. And we thank you so much for this season in the life of our church to celebrate the greatness, the, the greaterness of Jesus. May we lift him high in our hearts, our minds, our schedules, our conversations. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.